I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13. We're going to be talking about our responsibility to the state or the Christian and government this morning. And I, I did find it interesting, God's timing here, as uh, if you're familiar with Romans 13, uh, you'll know that in this particular passage when it talks about our relationship to the government, uh, it says, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. And I was thinking about that. It was Wednesday, April 15th, and I'm studying a passage that's dealing with taxes. Now, fortunately, I had paid mine, and hopefully all of you have gotten yours in on time, too, uh, as we look at this text this morning. I'd like to read the passage, and then we'll make some comments about it as we get into it this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, again, I'd like to read verses 1 to 7 of Romans chapter 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, and consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about this subject of our relationship as Christians to the government, I pray that you would again help us to see how relevant it is to our lives today, how important it is to understand it. And there's a lot that Christians have debated through the years. So as we talk about things that raise questions in our mind, help us, Lord, to hear from you and to know what is your will for us and how you want us to respond, both as a church and as individuals. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to do some research on a topic like this, you would find that there is a lot that has been written about the subject of Christian and government. And Christians don't agree on this subject all the time. There are things that are very clear in the Scripture, and then there are those gray areas where we uh, talk about them. Uh, one of the books that I looked at this week in preparation for the message was uh, written by Greg Boyd, a pastor in St. Paul, called The Myth of a Christian Nation. And he takes on the uh, kind of understanding that a lot of people have that America was a Christian nation uh, founded on Christian principles. And he takes issue with that. And he uh, has written about this particular subject. And uh, if you uh, are interested in reading it sometime, I'd encourage you to do that. You probably won't agree with everything in there, but there's a lot that is good in what he raises. Because there are times when uh, churches have gotten so entangled in state relationships that they can lose the heart of the gospel. 
Now, when Greg preached a series of messages on this in his church, about 20% of the church left. Lost about a 1,000 people uh, because they didn't agree with what he was talking about in the book. Another book that was written on this uh, a number of years ago, about 1996, I think it was, this came out, Two Cities, Two Loves by James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia. He's gone to be with the Lord, but was a great thinker and writer. And he wrote, uh, kind of taking Augustine's City of God that was written in the 4th century and did a rework of that and talking about our relationship with the state as a Christian and how are we to be involved What role should we play and what role should the church play in the whole political realm and in government? And then whenever there's an election that comes up, like last year, uh, Leadership Magazine, Christianity Today, and others will have articles on it. This one actually had a debate, three views, between uh, Chuck Colson, Greg Boyd, and Shane Claiborne on different perspectives. Chuck Colson being more the traditional approach that Christians have taken in government, uh, Greg Boyd kind of rethinking that from his perspective and Shane Claiborne is a founder of a monastic movement in Philadelphia and took a very different view on it. And so here are Christians who disagree in their understanding of the scripture. And that can be good for us to reflect on these things in a very thoughtful way and see, okay, what is it that God is saying to us? When we look at a text like this, And there are things that are very clear in terms of what it says. Paul begins by saying that everyone must submit to the governing authorities. All believers are to submit to the authority that God has placed over us. What we may find interesting is to remember who that authority was at the time that Paul wrote. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. The emperor at that time is Nero. Nero had come to power in A.D. 54, Paul writes, in the spring of A.D. 57. And he is telling these Christians to submit to the governing authority, to Nero, who in just a few years is going to unleash this terrible wave of persecution upon the church. Why would Paul say that? And what does he mean by submission? And are there any exceptions to that? I mean, those are some of the questions we read. In fact, we even wonder if this had been written a few years later, would Paul have worded things differently? No, because this is the Scripture, and it is authoritative for our lives. And so we're going to look at some of these questions today, and I'm not going to say that I will answer all of them satisfactorily, but at least we're going to see what the Scripture has to say about this. Why does the Bible teach that Christians are to be submissive to the state? Well, there are a number of reasons that you can find as you walk through this text. For example, one of the reasons is that government has been established by God for our good. God is the one who has given us this authority. And He is the one who has established it for the benefit of all people. And every government, whether they acknowledge Him or not, is under God's authority. And you can think about that, whether it was pagan Rome or a country like Iran today or North Korea or the United States. God is the one who has established government. And if you think about the Scriptures, God cares about authority in those relationships. It's why He tells children to be obedient to their parents. It's why in marriage He has the relationship where the husband is to be the head of the home. 
It's why in terms of the church, he asked the elders to rule or to give guidance or leadership in the church under the headship of Jesus Christ. And even in the Trinity, there is this aspect of headship and submission between the Father and the Son. God cares about authority in those relationships, but they are to be done in a way that honors Him. That's why Paul says, though, that therefore to rebel against the state would be to rebel against what God has instituted. Now, government's purpose is to keep the peace. It is to maintain law and order. And you see that in verses 3 and 4, that governments are established to reward those who do what is right, and they are to punish those who do what is wrong. They are even called here God's servants. And the word that Paul uses in Greek is the same word that's used for deacons, ministers. They are God's servants. And then in verse 6, he uses an even stronger word when he calls them God's servants. He takes the word that was used for the priests who would serve in the temple in their ministry, liturgas. And he will say that these who work in government are God's servants, God's ministers. That's interesting, isn't it? That when done as God intends, as unto the Lord, these individuals are representing God and are servants of Him. It's where we get the idea of government officials being public servants who work for the benefit of the people who live in a community or state or region where they serve. He also tells us about government that they are the ones who bear the sword, who are to defend the people. Remember in the previous chapter he talked about how when someone has wronged you as an individual that it is not our place to take revenge? It is really the position of government or the legal system to be the ones who carry out what is right and what is just in our land. And when they do that well, again, it is good for all people. Paul will also tell us that government is good for the gospel. Uh, Paul benefited in many ways from his Roman citizenship. As he traveled uh, throughout the Mediterranean region, there were times when he appealed to his Roman citizenship as a protection for him, due process of law, or that he was to be given a fair hearing when that was violated. And there was an example where that did occur. A person who punished him without realizing he was a Roman citizen could have gotten in severe trouble. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace that was in existence at that time at which the New Testament was written, really allowed the gospel to spread rapidly. Uh, Not only did the Romans build a good system of roads that was good for their armies to be able to move quickly, but it was good for the gospel to move quickly. And Paul could travel from different regions throughout the Mediterranean freely because he was a Roman citizen and because of the peace that was in existence at that time. And I think as Americans, we would also agree that American religious freedom has also been good for the gospel. That we have benefited because of those who did found this nation upon a Judeo-Christian principle They understood the potential corruption of man, and so they instituted a government that had checks and balances in it. And they believed that 
religion and morality and what they specifically meant there was Christian religion was good for the people. In their writings, they expressed that. And how important it was that if we were to preserve our freedoms, we would need to preserve our morality, our conscience. And that belief has served us well in this country. It's the reason why Paul also asks us in 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, to pray for those who are in authority over us. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he said, I urge then, first of all, that requests and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, that this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Good government is good for the gospel. It's good for the people. And that's why Paul urges us as Christians who are citizens of two kingdoms, the country in which we live and the kingdom of God, he urges us to pray for our leaders. And I believe it's also on that basis that in verses 6 and 7 he'll say that's why you should pay taxes. For the authorities of God's servants, who are God's servants, who give their full time to governing, We are to give everyone what we owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, that's things like license fees or certain other fees that you may have to pay. If you owe revenue, pay that revenue. If it is respect, then give respect. If it is honor, then give honor. Those things are really clear. It's the other areas where we raise questions. For example, Paul said in verse 3 that rulers hold no terror for those who do right. That's not always true, is it? That rulers hold no terror for those who do right. There are times when there are unjust and wicked rulers who oppress the people and who persecute believers. In fact, that's exactly what was going to happen under Nero in just a few short years. In AD 64, there was a fire that swept through Rome that was disastrous, and much of the city was burned. And there were rumors that Nero himself had actually started the fire to destroy some of the slum areas in the cities, wanting to rebuild it and create an area where he could continue his building projects. And so Nero needed to find a scapegoat. And the Roman historian Tacitus wrote about that, that Nero blamed the Christians. And he called them to account for what had happened. He accused them of these false crimes, and their deaths were made farcical. They were dressed in wild animal skins. They were torn to pieces by dogs. They were crucified. They were made into human torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. Nero provided the gardens for this spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus at which he mingled in the crowd. But the people understood what was happening. And their sentiment turned in favor of the Christians because it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than to the national interest. So what 
are Christians to do under such a government? And why would Paul say what he does about submitting to the governing authorities? I believe it is because he is talking about government as it should be. Government as God intends. And he's not dealing with the exceptions at the moment. Richard Halverson, who for many years was a chaplain of the United States Senate, said this. He said, To be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state, just as man, because of sin, has abused and misused every other institution in history, including the Church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must be human government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate role of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy, and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that people do misuse and abuse authority. It happens in government, happens in the church, happens in marriage. It doesn't mean that those institutions are wrong. What God calls us to is to make them the very best that they can be because they are good for our country and good for the gospel and good for our individual lives. So what does submission mean then? When Paul says that everyone must submit to the governing authorities, what does that mean? And when, if ever, is it right to disobey? Well, the word submit here means to place yourself under someone else's authority. To be under their authority like a wife to her husband or a children to their parents. It's interesting that in Paul's choice of words, he did not use the word obey here. Now, submission will often show itself in obedience, but there is a recognition here that there are limits to authority. Paul doesn't state them in this passage. We can find them in other passages of Scripture as we think about this. And Pastor Kent Hughes gave three examples in his commentary on Romans about this. When is it right for a Christian to disobey or to not do what the government asks? Well, one of those times would be when a believer is asked to violate a command of Scripture, a command of God. We see an example of that in Acts chapter 4 and 5 where those who were in authority there, Jewish, Jewish rulers, commanded Peter and John to no longer teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And how did they reply? They said, we must obey God rather than men. If the government were to ever ask us to no longer evangelize or no longer preach or teach the Scriptures or assemble as we do, it would be right for a Christian to disobey that because we have a higher authority, God Himself. There's another time when a believer is asked to do something immoral. It might be perjury, lying under oath, or falsifying records, or engage in criminal activities. It would be right for that believer to disobey. A third example would be when a believer is asked to go against their conscience. If the rules are changed in terms of our laws or government, there are times when a Christian may disobey respectfully. There may be consequences for that, but it is the right thing to do. For example, doctors and medical workers 
should not be forced to perform abortions when they don't agree with that. And in the same way, pastors should not be forced to marry same-sex couples when they believe the Scripture teaches otherwise. And there are countries and there are times when these things are shifting in the way that our country or other countries may look at some of these issues like abortion and homosexuality when we may be forced to take a stand according to biblical convictions. And in the same way, Christians who are pacifists should not be forced to serve in combat in the military. They should not be forced to go against their conscience. But how we protest or how we make our positions known is also significant. I don't believe that God has called us to use violence or force in terms of establishing those things or making our argument known. When we think about how the Christians in the early church dealt with issues in their government, we don't see any place in Scripture where they organized protests or riots or things of that kind of nature. Instead, they lived their faith out and they called people to obedience in Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I note most clearly that they did was they prayed. They prayed. In that passage in Acts chapters 4 and 5, when believers were threatened and suffered persecution for their faith, for preaching in the name of Jesus, they came together and they met in prayer. And they said, God, give us the courage to stand for You. Give us the courage to preach the Word of God with boldness. And the place where they were praying was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the Word of God boldly. God heard and answered their prayer, but sometimes the way God uses the church and sometimes the way that God speaks most loudly is through our suffering. He speaks very loudly at times from prison cells and from the grave of martyrs. And what if things were to change in our country? And what if the freedoms that we had enjoyed were lost? Would we still meet? Would we still choose to live for Christ? Would we still choose to obey the Word of God? It's a choice that believers in many countries of our world are faced with every single day. So should Christians engage in trying to pass legislation or to try and lobby for particular viewpoints in our government? I believe that as individual Christians, yes, we should. We should be involved and use every means that we can to defend the gospel and to preserve religious freedom. But not as a church. Because every time the church has gotten entangled with government, it's been bad for the gospel. Governing is messy business. It is full of compromises. And whenever the church becomes aligned like with one political party or the other, it just isn't good. I mean, in recent days, we've had uh, younger Christians growing up thinking that in order to be a Christian, you had to be a Republican. And what that does is it really taints the gospel message because then people tend to think that everything the Republican Party does is what Christians are supposed to do. And that is not true at all. 
And the same thing can happen in other areas. When Christians get so actively involved and they feel like there's only one point of view that Christians can hold to, when it may be open to debate. That's not good when the church becomes aligned with one issue or one particular political party. So how should Christians engage their culture? And what is it that God wants us to do as a proper response? Well, there are thoughtful Christians who have written about this, and James Boyce's books is one of those. In his book, Two Cities, Two Loves, he identifies kind of the four ways that Christians have tried to change their culture or engage it. In the one view, the first one, he calls Christ over culture. And this is the view that tries to impose Christianity by force upon the culture. In the Middle Ages, this meant that the Pope was the highest authority in the, in the world. And he was the one who actually ordained and commissioned kings. But what happened in that period of time was that people aspired to this position of power and the church became corrupt, extremely corrupt. And this particular view of Christ over culture is also the view of many evangelicals who want to take back America by legislation. It's a similar kind of thinking that if we can just change the laws, if we can just somehow change our government, that then we'd be a Christian nation. But legislation does not deal with the heart. It doesn't change the heart. It can preserve freedoms for the gospel, but only Jesus Christ can change the heart of the individual. Sometimes Christians have reacted in a second way, and that's called Christ apart from culture. And this is the view that really wants nothing to do with the culture and separates from the world. The monastics retreated into monasteries. And there are Christians today who are so discouraged by what they see in our world and in government that they just kind of want to circle the wagons and pull back and live their own lives in isolation. But that won't change our world either, will it? A third view is called Christ under culture. It's the view of really uh, more of the liberal church that has taken the view that it's not the culture that needs to change as much as it is the church that needs to change. And in many cases what happens here is that uh, the view is that the church or Christianity is not particularly unique. It is just one of many ways to God. And that's why today... In, uh, some churches or among Christians, things we once thought of as sin are no longer sin. Times have changed, and the church needs to change to adapt to the times. And the fourth view is the view that Christ transforms culture. This is the view that believes that the best way to change our world is by the power of the gospel, one heart at a time. The change will not come from government. The change will come from the gospel of Jesus Christ as men and women come to know Him. This is the view that believes that we are to be salt and light in our world and that the best way to do that is by living out the gospel every single day in our life. It may be slower, but it is more effective in the long run. And what James Boyce in his book called us to be as Christians and to do is to live our lives in such a way that others would see the truth of the gospel in us. 
I think that there are three ways that we are to express our faith. Number one is by our presence. Again, that in all walks of life, whether we are in education or business or medicine or law or government, wherever we may be, we are to live out the truth of the gospel in us so that others can see that. It's the call to be salt and light in our world. The second way is through persuasion. We are to proclaim the truth of God's Word. And we are to never be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. And so we are engaged in this dialogue that's going on in our world about the issues of our time. But the weapons we fight with are not physical weapons of the sword. The weapon we use is the Word of God and the truth of God's Word. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And we need Christians who are articulate defenders of the truth. We need men and women who are in places of government and law and who can help to shape those uh, laws in our nation. And thirdly, we are to make a difference in our world through prayer. By the power of God as He hears and answers our prayer. Second Chronicles 7.14 is still true when God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God calls His people to pray. You know, I think about these three areas. Those are very important for each one of us. We each have a role to play in our particular work or vocation. And by our life, we can be a witness for Jesus Christ. We can also speak up to defend the truth of Scripture and to share what God has said and use every means possible to persuade others. But ultimately, it is the power of God that changes the hearts of people and changes our nation. The former British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, was an unusual politician in that she understood the limits of government and called for its renewal by, pe- by people able to live a life of true faith. She recognized this difference between the church and the state. And once when she was addressing the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, she said, The truths of the Judeo-Christian tradition are infinitely precious, not only as I believe because they are true, but also because they provide the moral impulse which alone can lead to that peace for which we all long. There is little hope for democracy if the hearts of men and women in democratic societies cannot be touched by a call to something greater than themselves. Political structures, state institutions, collective ideals are not enough. We parliamentarians can legislate for the rule of law, but you, the church, can teach the life of faith. She understood that we can pass laws, but laws don't change the heart. And she looked to the church, to the people of God, to be the people of God. Because only the church, as it lifts up Jesus Christ, can change the hearts and call people to faith. That's our primary mission. And we must never forget it that God has called us to be people of God everywhere that we live. Let's pray.
Father, when I think about a subject like this, there is so much that could be said and so many different ways that we could talk about this particular issue. And I pray that today the things that we've seen in the Scripture and that we've talked about in this message, I pray that it would be helpful for us in thinking through what our role is in our business, in our school, in our place of work. Help us to be salt and light. Help us to live in such a way that others could see Jesus Christ in us and help us to have wisdom of when to take action and when to sit back and to listen to your Holy Spirit to be the people that you've called us to be. And God, would you bring healing in our land? Would you forgive our sins? And would you empower your church to be a strong voice for you to the moral issues of our age? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.